I love classic children's books. How many of you like classic children's books? Now, when I was a child, a classic children's book was this book right here. Uh, zoom in on this, if you would. It's, uh, it's a little bit worn. Can you read the title? The Little Train That Could. I mean, this is a classic in my opinion, and if you can see this book, it's worn out, man. I mean, it's, it's, been, uh, it's been through three children and probably tens of thousands of readings, literally. Because when you have children, uh, they want the same book read over and over and over and over. And then when you think it's done, they want it read over and over and over. And sometimes you may read it 10 or 15 times in one setting, the same book. And you think, my soul, this is repetition. How many more times? But they want to. And if you don't take the time to read with your kids, you're going you're gonna to regret it as they get into school because this is where they learn to read when you read to them. Very strategic if you're raising children today. And if you do not have this in your library, you need to purchase it. This is my copy. You can't have it. And uh, Owen will be in our house, hopefully by this afternoon. As you know, I am not Aaron Boswell. I am the eldest, uh, one of the two people responsible. Well, one of the three, God, me and my wife, Patty. Uh, but he got delayed. His flight was canceled in Chicago. And so he is hopefully on the way. But there are delays. We shall see. By the end of the service, Pastor Gary, you're going to get a text. I'm going to get a text. Or Patty's going to get a text. Have you got one already? saying whether or not he's going to be able to leave Chicago and get here in time for our time together tonight with Aaron. But the little train that could. And uh, there's a part in there that I usually, you know, I used to like to play around. You know, you get tired of it, so you begin sort of to improvise. You, you don't know what I'm talking about. If you do, raise your hand. I knew most of you could raise your hands. Some of you can get, yeah, I can do that. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, when you get to that part, going up the hill. I think I can. I think I can. And the train's going up and you just sort of delay and you pause it and you embellish it a little bit. I think I can. I want to stop there for right now. Sometimes that describes our lives when it comes to stubborn sin. We think we can. We think we can. But the reality is that no matter how much effort, how much strength, how much due diligence, how much muster we bring down from the depths and try to overcome these stubborn sins, the reality is they're hard to overcome, aren't they? They keep haunting our lives and they keep drawing our attention. And, and, and they continue to hold us captive and enslaved. And we are told time and time again, I can, I can, I can. But for some unknown reason to me, I just can't seem to manage to overcome this stubborn sin in my life. You more than likely have one stubborn sin. Can you identify it today? 
That one repetitive, stubborn, continual, constant nagging that's there, and you have time and time again, you have wrestled with it, you have struggled with it, you have confessed it, you have forsaken it, you thought you'd gain victory over it, and as soon as you've gotten on a course of what you think is going to give you this wonderful life of victory, it haunts you again, it reminds you of its presence, and before you know it, you have succumbed to its temptations, you've given in to the lust and to the, to the call and to the temptation that it renders, and you find yourself once again shackled to the sin that you thought you were free of. And then you wonder, why isn't, isn't this happening? Why, why, God, am I not free? Why have, why have I not been released? Why do I continue to deal over and over and over again in my life with the same sin that is stubborn? It has a root that's hard to dig out. It has shackled my life, it has enslaved my walk with you, and it has rendered me powerless too many times, I'm tired of it. But it just doesn't seem to go away. In Genesis chapter 20, we learn where Abraham, a man of faith, a man of faith, a man who is called to be the friend of God, who walks in an intimate love relationship with God by grace through faith, has a stubborn sin. He reverts back to an old sin and he repeats it. Is there anybody in here who has not repeated a sin more than twice? Anybody? Well, I'm the only one. I got my hand up. Repeating repetitive sins are something that every believer deals with. So how do you overcome them? Let's go to the passage in Genesis chapter 20, and let's take a look at the first step that I'm going to talk about today, and we're going to come back at the end and sort of bring it all together. But I overcome stubborn sins, first of all, through recognition. There's a recognition that must take place, a recognition of the humanity or the natural tendency that I have to go back to my old sin. A recognition of a, of a deception that somehow I convince myself that I'm over the sin, but really I'm not over it. When I have confessed it, maybe I've not confessed it. When I've repented of it, I maybe have not repented of it. When I think that just maybe it no longer has a hold of my life, here it comes again. It's a recognition of this human tendency that I have to be depraved, to be deprived, to be dishonest, to be deceitful, not only with God and with others, but sometimes even with myself. For that, I think, is probably the root cause of sin that is stubborn to uproot from our lives. It is, a, it is a failure to recognize its presence and to recognize why it's there. Let's take a look at the text in verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the t territory of Negev and lived between Kedesh and Shur. And he sojourned to Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, uh, say that you are my sister. Say that you are my sister. And Abilamech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Here we have a repetitive sin, and he repeats a sin that he committed several, maybe a couple of weeks ago, maybe eight or nine weeks ago we dealt with this, where he was back in Egypt, if you remember, and he did this same thing before. And now he does it again. And notice the course of this sin. 
If you look at the text very carefully, you could dissect that, first of all, Abraham made a decision. It was a, a decision in which he decided that he was going to make a journey from where he was to another location. If you remember last week, we, we saw Abraham when he was standing in that very spot where he had spent some time with the Lord, and he was lamenting over the fact that God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and he asked God for more time. And then he goes back to that very spot after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he laments over what has happened, and we, we see him in the scriptures. That's the last time we see him standing there looking down and lamenting over what has happened. He has no news, more than likely, about Lot and his family, and he's not aware of where they have gone and, and what's happened to them, and that's the last time we see him. Until now, in Genesis 20, we see Abraham packing up all of his belongings, getting his family to together and all of his herds and all of his cattle and here they go off to a to a southern route that is familiar to him a southern route that he has journeyed before several chapters earlier toward Egypt this time he doesn't go all the way to Egypt he goes to a familiar New Testament place we all know as Palestine. Anybody know what, what gave Palestine? The, the one person we know in the Old Testament, the most, uh, I mean the Philistine, the Phil, not Palestine, the Philistine area. Who's the one Philistine that everybody remembers in the Old Testament? Goliath. And so he journeys southward to the old Philistine country, to this area. Now, I don't know if you missed it or not, but, but do you find a place in this text where he actually consulted with God? Is there a time when God told him it was time to uproot and go somewhere else? I mean, he's already where God has been directing him. He's already in, in, in the place where God wants him to be. He's in the center of God's will for his life. And, and he, the last time we saw him was on this mountain looking down at the destruction of Sodom. And now we see him packing his bags and moving. And we see no time, no place, no discussion between him and God. There was no communion. There was no fellowship, no direction from God saying, Abraham, I want you to move. And so he makes a decision to move, and this decision that he makes is completely on his own. It's on his own. It's not directed by God. And the reason he makes this decision, if you look at the text, is because of a disbelief that he has in the fact that as he makes this journey, he doesn't believe that God would protect him on this journey. I think primarily one of the main reasons why he may think that is because I don't have a direction from God. I'm taking this, this matter into my own hands. I am moving for whatever reason, and there are various reasons we could presuppose as to why he leaves where he is to go somewhere else, maybe disappointment over what happened to Sodom and maybe all kinds of things we can imagine. We don't know. The Scripture doesn't tell us, but he's moving. He's made a decision to go because he just doesn't believe God can protect. He's out of fear. Because he's moving to a distant land where the people do not honor God. And as he makes this decision to move, he's getting more and more distant from the place where God had intended. And this disbelief takes him now to this dishonesty that results in once he gets to this place, he, confront, he is confronted by this king, this very powerful man named Abimelech. And Abimelech then encounters him and word gets back to Abimelech that Sarah is a beautiful lady. 
how old is Sarah right now? Anybody know? Anybody know? 90. She's 90. And she's still attractive. Anybody know any 90-year-old attractive women? Brother Dorian? Is Dora still attractive? Yes. Just asking. And he was afraid that someone would want to take his wife from him. And he concocts this notion, he suggests to Sarah, when we come across these powerful kings in this kingdom, they're going to want you in their harem, and I want you with me to lie to them and say that you're my sister, because if you don't, they will kill me to take you into their harem. And so, thus, the dishonesty and the deception is conceived. And the end result is disappointment. Because sure enough, Abimelech comes, learns of Sarah and her beauty, and wants her in his harem, and takes her as his wife into his harem. And now Abraham, once again, is in a distant country, distant from the Lord, having been dishonest about his wife... And in complete defeat, in a place he shouldn't go. If, if Abraham had recognized his human tendency not to fully trust God and to build some protective measures around that, that, that tendency not to put faith in the Lord completely and totally, do you think he would have done this a second time? Now, don't get all pious with me in regard to Abraham because you and I are no different than he. You and I and we have a problem putting our complete and full trust in God. And you have as many fears and uncertainties and insecurities about your future as Abraham did. And you, if you're not careful, will give in to those those human tendencies, and you will try to shelter, protect, and guard and protect your life and your family at any cost, even at the cost of putting your faith on the block and disbelieving God. Facebook and Internet is inundated with people that are freaking out because they're afraid of the terrorists. People are insane. I know who holds my future. I know in whom I have believed. I know in whom I have put my trust in. And I know the faithfulness and the love of God and His provision and His power and His protection over our lives. Why should we as Christ followers who put our trust and faith in Jesus and the Father worry about anything they can do to us? We're wimpy in our faith, just like Abraham. And, and we're fearful, and we're worried, and we're over-preoccupied with embellishing our, our comforts and our securities and our luxuries and our lifestyle to the point where we just simply can't fully trust God, or can we? 
If you want to overcome your tendencies to, to these weaknesses that you have, recognize your tendency to trust yourself more than God and make that corrective measure. Number two, revelation. There's an aspect of revelation here that happens because Abimelech has no idea. Again, he has no idea that he has sinned against Abraham or God. He's clueless. And, and, and it's here where we see that God is going to divinely intervene on Abraham's part, and he's going to come to Abimelech, and he's going to tell Abimelech, hey, dude, you're in sin. Notice verse 3, and God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, how many of you were, thought you were dreaming the other night when the earthquake hit? Got me straight out of... Now, how many of you slept through that? There's something seriously wrong with you people. Okay? How many of you, like me, are, are, are aware of your surroundings in the middle of the night? Praise God for you people. Jesus is going to come back, and they're going to miss it. <laughs> no, you won't. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. In the middle of the night, Abimelech has a dream. He has a dream, and the Lord comes to him. We know that, that the Lord speaks to him, but we don't know if in this dream he had a vision or if he just heard the word of the Lord. But he hears the word of the Lord, and possibly he sees a, a, a reflection or vision of the Lord. Maybe, maybe not. And the Lord says to him, Behold. Now, if you have a vision and you hear the voice of God, and he says, Behold, that means listen up. Pay close attention. You are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is another man's wife. She is Abraham's wife. He reveals to Abimelech what he has done. Abimelech, you have sinned. You have taken what belongs to another man. Adultery is sin. I don't care how you frame it. I don't care how you clothe it. I don't care how you excuse it. If you are cheating with someone else's spouse, or you are a spouse cheating with someone else, that's sin. And here he says, let me tell you what you've done. You have taken another man's wife. Even though you're unaware of it, she was married to another and is married. And what you have done is sin. That's what you are, and that's what you've done. You have sinned. He's revealing to Abraham that he sinned. But, I mean, Abimelech. And then Abimelech tells him why. Why has he sinned? Now, notice in the passage that Abimelech doesn't really say, no, I've not sinned. He doesn't argue with God. And in some regards, he does admit that he has sinned, but he admits that he sinned unknowingly. Can you sin unknowingly? I ask you, can you sin unknowingly? The answer is yes. Ignorance is no excuse. Let me say that again. Ignorance is no excuse. Abimelech has no idea that he has sinned, but God is saying you have sinned. And God is now about to reveal to Abimelech, well, he has revealed to Abimelech where he has sinned. Notice his response. Notice the why. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, he said, he had not yet approached her. That's sort of a, an addendum there. They have not consummated the marriage. And so he says now to the Lord, 
Will you kill an innocent people? Well, of course God doesn't do that. Abimelech's not innocent. (laughs) He's guilty. He just doesn't know it. Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? Notice the conspiracy. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Why has he done this? They've been dishonest. And he's taken another man's wife without knowing it. But the Lord has the why, how you can correct it. Notice he says in verse 6, Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. How would you like for God to say that to you? You have integrity in your heart. Your motives have been pure. You innocently did this, but yet you have still done this. He's not sort of saying that he's free to continue or that he is absolved of all all guilt here. But he does say here, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. You had no ill intentions. You had no preconceived ideas. You didn't know she was married and you took her anyway. And it was I, notice God, it was I who protect you or kept you from sinning against me. Hey, God is saying, through divine perception, I know that you have taken another man's wife, and I know what is in your heart. I know you didn't intend to do this, but notice in this divine protection, God is saying, I have, up to this point, kept you from sinning further. Isn't that great? In Abraham's ignorance, God is protecting his wife. Even his disobedience, God is still protecting. He'll protect your spouse. He'll protect your children. Even if, and some of you have disobedient children right now that are not walking in the, in the fruit and in the power of the Spirit, and they're being disobedient, I would pray that God would protect my children even in their disobedience, and don't let them go beyond where they cannot return. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, Notice, notice the promise, return to man's wife, for he is a prophet. What's the solution? Take her back to where she belongs. Repent of what you have done and return her back, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. Why? Because he's a dead man. But if you do not return her, Know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Notice the promise. If you don't do what I'm telling you to do, you will surely die. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wage of sin is death. You will die. You will die. Abimelech had sinned unknowingly, but he was guilty of taking another man's wife. And through divine revelation, God intervened and revealed to him his sin. Oh, but wouldn't that be wonderful when we step outside of the will of God and God reveals that we have sinned? Don't don't treat that too lightly. Don't don't treat that too lightly. Don't don't hate that. Don't despise that. Don't reject that. Don't deny that. None of us like to be exposed for the sinners that we are. Do we? 
but how tender and how loving and how caring and how compassionate it is for a loving father to come into, to, to invade our sinful lives and to reveal to us that we have sinned. Because only through that revelation that we have sinned can we then be reconciled with God. And God in his loving, compassionate, caring heart comes to Bimelech and, and helps out Sarah and helps out Abraham and he's protecting the future of the seed by which through Abraham and Sarah will come our Savior Jesus and Satan is doing everything he can to prevent that from happening, it, happening yet God is still actively working in that disobedience and is protecting all three from further sin. And he through divine intervention, reveals to Abimelech, hey, you're living in sin. So what does he do with that? Brings us to point three, receptivity. The only way I can overcome stubborn sin is by being receptive to the revelation of God and to do something with what God has revealed in my heart. Notice verse 8, so Abimelech, what did he do? He rose early in the morning he rose early in the morning, verse 8, and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. His response was decisive. He did not delay. He rose early in the morning, and he called all of his servants together, and he confessed to them, I have sinned against God, and I have sinned against Abraham. And the reason why we are experiencing the consequences that are happening in our, in our family right now is because of the sin that I have committed, and the sin that Abraham have, has committed, and the sin that Sarah has committed. And this is the reason why God is bringing down these consequences consequences upon our lives now notice the rebuke the rebuke is very direct the response was decisive and the rebuke is direct because he's going to seek out Abraham he's a man of action he doesn't delay in that either immediately notice verse 9 then after he gathered everybody together and he confessed what was going on then immediately after that Abimelech called Abraham and said to him have you done what have you done to us and how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom notice how he describes it a great sin you have done to me things that ought not to be done. He called out Abraham. He called him out. And some of you know people right now that are living in rebellion and sin against God, and, and you just don't want to call them out. And yet if you don't call them out, who will? And he called Abraham out. Hey, hey. Let's have a powwow, man. Let's get together. Let's have a meeting. Can you imagine how long that journey was from Abraham's tent to, the, to the, maybe the palace of Abimelech, what he thought as he was en route to that palace? Do you think he knows? Do you think he knows? What's going on? You know, sweating, worried, nervous, anticipating the worst, not knowing if he knew I mean, the guy had his wife, maybe a little bit of anger and jealousy. He doesn't know what's happened between Abimelech and his wife and all of these emotions that are going. And now he is called out. And as soon as he gets there, notice he is confronted with his sin. Dude, you have lied to me. 
This woman is your spouse. She is your wife. And he confessed his innocence. I knew nothing about this. It's not my fault. Had I known that she was your wife, I would have never taken her unto myself. And then he he reveals here uh, the conviction that he has because he calls this a great sin. This is not a minor infliction. It is a great sin. And I ask you, what sin isn't great? Define a sin that isn't great. All sin is great. For all sin took Christ to the cross. And there are no degrees, there are no levels of sin. Sin is sin. And this sin, he was convicted, was a great sin. And notice his complaint. You have done me things that ought not to be done. Dude, I got a complaint against you. Look what you brought onto my life. And some of you could say, you know, I have people that have done things to me that they brought things into my life, and it's not fair. To which I say, get over it. Because life is not fair. We were in the grocery store the other day, and there was a child just screaming, bloody murder, man. I mean, she, she was a little bitty, and I couldn't really see her. She was in a, one of those things that mothers carry around everywhere, you know, those, those heavy things. Those things weigh 100 pounds by themselves. I think mothers today are some of the strongest human beings on the planet. I mean, and if you've got two, you're a hulk, and if you've got three, you're a superwoman because it's just hard to do. You know, when, when we had kids, we didn't have that much stuff, <laughs> but... I mean, they're huge, and, and, and so this kid was screaming bloody murder, and mom was just kind of going through the grocery store, you know, just going along. And I came by and said, uh, she's got to learn the lesson, doesn't she? And she looked at me, and, and I said, yeah, that, that life's not all about me, and that life sometimes is tough. She said, that's right. She kept right on going. <laughs> Baby screaming bloody murder. And you can scream and scream and scream and scream and scream that life isn't fair. And it's not. People are going to do things to you that's not fair. It's not your fault. They're going to be dishonest with you. and They're going to sin against you and they're going to hurt you and harm you. And, and many people in our congregation have been harmed by other people. Some of them parents, some of them brothers and sisters, some of them uncles and aunts, and some of them neighbors and co-workers and employers. Give it to God. But he's got a complaint. But the, but the response from Abimelech is interesting to me. You have this, far as, as far as we know, he's not a believer, and yet he's receptive to God. He's receptive to the divine revelation that he's a sinner. And he accepts that God has been intervening and preventing him from going deeper into sin, and he takes quick measures to correct the mistake, and he approaches Abraham, who's a man of faith. He, maybe not a man of faith, approaches the man of faith to correct the sin. Are you receptive to the revelation that God has brought into your life that what you are involved in is sin? I'm convinced one of the main reasons why we have repetitive sins and stubborn sins in our lives because we often excuse them. 
We tolerate them. Maybe we feed them. And we sort of wash over them, and we're not as receptive to the revelation that God has said to us, this is sin. And so we seek to justify what we do in order to sort of release ourselves from that pressure of guilt and conscience that we have because God has continued to say, it's sin, it's sin, it's sin, but God, but God. And we continue to excuse, and we continue to to deny, and we continue to suppress, and we continue to be dishonest with God, with ourselves, and with others, and we're just simply not receptive to God revealing to us that what we are doing is sin. What degree of sin is sin? It's all sin. And I don't care if it's an attitude or a, a thought or an emotion or a look or a listening or, or, a, or a word or, 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 or a grievous, what you might call a great sin. But they're all great sins. When God reveals that it's sin, be receptive to that revelation. And number two, Repent. That takes us to number four, repentance. And we have one more after this, repentance. Admit it quickly. And Abimelech, verse 10, said to Abraham. I can imagine that encounter where, where Abimelech is just kind of laying it all, all out there. Abraham's going to go on. And notice what he asked. Abimelech ends his 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 direct rebuke and how direct and how short it was. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Give me a, an explanation, man. I mean, uh, give me a reason for this choice, this decision you made to be dishonest with me and to tell me that your wife was your sister. Notice Abraham, the man of faith, response. I did it because I thought there was no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Is that a good defense? Is it? That's his defense. I'm in a country I shouldn't be, distant from God, among a bunch of heathens who don't believe in Jehovah, who are not saved by grace through faith, as I am. And, and they don't fear God. What hypocrisy. I say it again. What hypocrisy. A man of faith says they don't believe in God. When if he had put his faith in God, he would have been the man that he should have been and it would have been willing to die for his wife. The Bible says that men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and are willing to die for them. Right? It takes a man of courage and a man of faith to trust God and say, if my wife is being threatened, I will put my life on the line and I will die for her. And he didn't have enough faith to do that. He's a hypocrite. And there are many hypocrites just like him in the church who are pointing fingers at others and say they don't have faith when they need to be looking at a spiritual mirror and, 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 and looking at their own lives seeing where is it that I lack faith in God and trust in him. It ain't my brother, it ain't my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. His defense was that he was afraid. What a wimp. But he's a man of faith. He's a wimp. I don't care what your position or what your title or what your degree or what your whatever, we're all wimpy from time to time, with the exception of me. 
We all. And, and to, to defend our rationale and our reasoning for succumbing to our fears and disobeying God carries no weight with God, and it carries no weight with Abimelech. Now notice his dishonesty. He's not only put up a bad defense, but notice his dishonesty. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. That's a half-truth. And half-truths are more dangerous than lies because they're more deceptive than outright lies because they contain just a nugget of truth in order to slip in the lie to cause you to buy into what they're saying. He was her brother, and she was his sister, but I believe by his grandfather, which is very distantly removed. And if you remember clans back then, they intermarried. This is not incest. It's not family stuff as we think today. It's just how it was back then. But it's, it's a half-truth, but it's not the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. It's a half-truth. He's being, this is a man of faith being dishonest. Have you ever been dishonest about your sin? Sure you have. But notice now, he he not only gives a bad defense and he's dishonest, but notice now the deflection. This is kind of similar to what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. They deflect. I'm not really to blame. God is. And, And Sarah is. Notice. And when God calls me to wander from my father's house... Whose fault is it? God's. I don't have a land of my own. I'm a nomad. I'm a pilgrim, and I'm going from place to place, and God is putting me in places of danger, and and in those places of danger, I'm afraid, and because I'm afraid, it's all God's fault. God, if you hadn't given me these tendencies, if you hadn't given me these thoughts, if you hadn't allowed me to be in this place or in this position, in this person with this conversation, if you had, had protected me and shielded me, I wouldn't have sinned, and really, it's your fault, God. No, it's not God's fault. He says to us who are believers, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. It's not God's fault that you're sinning over and over and over and over and over again. Take responsibility for your sin. But notice, it's Sarah. She conceived with me this sin. I said to her, Sarah, there is the kindness. This is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say to me, he is my brother. It is Abraham who comes to Sarah and suggests that they once again go back to the same old sin and do the same old trick and the same old deception. Hey, Sarah, we're going down to the south, back where you've been before in Egypt. Remember what we did down there? I told everybody you were my sister. You said that I was your brother. We're going to run across some people that, are, that don't believe in God, blah, blah, blah. And he presents this case. And being the good wife that she is, she follows his lead and she conceives to sin with him. Husbands, you're responsible for your wives in leading them spiritually. That's a whole other message there. But he conceives with Sarah to lie. Repentance. Did he repent? I ask you, does this sound like repentance to you? It doesn't sound like it to me. Well, wait a minute, he's a man of faith. 
Well, you know what? Sometimes people of faith don't repent. Sometimes people of faith don't repent. I had a brother who asked me back there, said, uh, we got to talking back there and just off the top of my head, he said, uh, he's got a friend at work and asked him if a person commits suicide, are they going to go to are they going to go to heaven? And he believes that suicide is the, is the unpardonable sin. And we got to talking about, show me in Scripture where it says that. There's nowhere it says that in the Bible, by the way. And uh, the only unpardonable sin is disbelief in Jesus. But <laughs> I, we got to talking just very briefly. We didn't have a lot of time. Is it possible for a person who's a believer to get so down emotionally and spiritually where they could do such a thing? I believe it is. I believe it's possible for a, for a believer to get so bound by sin for failing to repent that they almost don't reflect anything of the character and the nature of Christ. I believe once you're saved, you're always secure. Once you're saved, you're always safe. I believe that once the Holy Spirit builds a residence in here and cleanses you of your sin, that he places his permanent presence in your life and he never departs. My son, who did not show up today, his name is Aaron Boswell, will always be my son no matter what he does, where he goes, and how he lives. He can never change that. Why? I gave birth to him. Well, Patty gave birth to him. <laughs> but I was there. And it takes two to tango. But anyway, he carries my last name. The prodigal son who rebelled against his father was still his father's son no matter where he lived, no matter what he did. And when he came home, he found his father waiting. And there's some people that you know, and some of us in here are living in sin day after day, moment after moment, and we are not repenting of our sin. And what what our pastor Ryan just read, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means we have been set free from the condemnation of sin and the control of sin, and we have been called to live a holy life, and it's not our choice now in Christ to continue to live in sin, and when he reveals that we have sinned, we repent. And that means we stop doing what we're doing, and we turn our back on it, and we go the other way. And part of the main reason why many people are not overcoming these sins that are stubborn and repetitive is you've not repented. Repent. Call it what it is. Whatever language you need to use, turn your back on it and walk away and don't, don't keep doing this and don't go back to it. Walk away. I know it calls you by name. I know it, it pulls on your tendencies and it whispers in your ear and it boggles your mind and it has a rope, but you can, and you can move on. I don't care if it's alcoholism, drug addiction, adultery, pornography, whatever it is, he can set you free. He can stop your tongue. He can close your ears. He can open your eyes to see Jesus and not other things if you will repent. And the reason why sins are repetitive is because believers are not repenting. We're like Abraham. We're excusing and we're enjoying and we're living with this thing in here that's saying, no, 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 no. But we just ignore that. 
And freedom comes through repentance. And after repentance comes restoration. Notice as we close the text, verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. Sound like repentance to you? And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell here when it pleases you. You have no land? Here's, here's mine. But to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given you, given your brother a thousand. Notice I'm going to come back to that in a minute. I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you were vindicated. Why does she need vindication? Because her husband is the one who actually enticed her and helped her sin. But notice Abimelech's offering. He releases livestock, laborers, because you know if you're going to have a, a whole bunch of livestock, you're going to need additional laborers to take care of the livestock. So in his understanding of how business works, he gave him a bunch more livestock and gave him laborers to take care of the livestock. And then he gave him land in order to facilitate what he gave him. He returned his wife to him. He restored her honor back to Sarah. But notice he also, in the process, does rebuke Sarah. Hey, Sarah, you told me he was your brother. You too sinned. And you too lied. That was his offering, though. His offering was the livestock, the laborers, and the land. He returned the wife and restored her honor. Why did he do that? It was a love offering. Why did he give it to Abraham? Because Abraham was a representative of God. A poor one, but he still was. You see, you're not called to respect the man of God because of his perfect life. You're to give the man and the woman of God their respect and their honor because of their call and because of the grace of God. There's no perfect pastor. There's no perfect pastors. There's no perfect deacon. There's no perfect life group teacher. And if God demanded perfection before he could use us, none of us in this room would be honored to be used. And he honored the prophet, and he gave it to God by giving, giving it to God's spokesman, God's prophet. And that was his offering. In a moment, we're going to take up an offering, and our offerings are given out of gratitude of what God has done for us as unto the Lord. We give it as unto the Lord. Why? Because of the grace that he's extended to us. Abimelech was so thankful for God's grace that he was willing to give it all because it, 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 without it, he was a dead man. You know, without God's grace, you're a dead man. You're a dead woman. And if it were not for Jesus, you'd be going straight to... That was his offering. What is your offering? But notice the opportunity that Abraham took, and I want to close with this. And Abraham, I want to leave Abraham out of this, the man of faith. He prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. 
For the Lord had chosen all, closed, closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abraham seeks the Lord. Have you ever sought the Lord after a long period of disobedience? Have you ever done that? I, I'm, 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 all of us should say, yeah, I've done that. How hard is it to come back to the Lord after a, a, a direct violation, complete disobedience and disregard for God, and now you're finding your way back on your knees before God, and you're making that journey? That, that's pretty difficult. I mean, Abraham knew what he had to do. <laughs> i, I got to make that pilgrimage back to God. And he knew that he was saved by grace through faith. And were not for God's grace, he too would be a dead man. And he comes to the Father. He doesn't run from the Father. Whenever you've sinned, run to him, not away from him. He runs to God. And he pleads and he begs and he seeks the grace, not only for his own life, but for God's grace for Abimelech's life. And he secures healing, not only between his relationship with God and himself, but Abimelech's relationship with God and Abimelech. And healing is the end result. So, as we close, back to our introduction. The little train that could. I think I can. I think he's struggling. He's struggling, weighted down with toys and Good stuff to eat for the good boys and boy, girls on the other side of the hill. And he's, he's trying and he's giving his, I think I can, I think I can. And he gets to the top and what does he say? I know I could. I, I knew I could. 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 You're here today and you're probably thinking you can't. But I'm here today to tell you that you can. I had somebody one time trying to insult me one day. They were mad at me for whatever reason. Well, I think they were mad at my children. And they came up to me and said, your children believe they can do anything. I said, thank you very much. We did a lot of bad things parenting. That's one of the things we did good. We let our children believe they could do anything through Christ. There are no limitations when Jesus is the Lord of your life. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. If I submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee. There is therefore now no condemnation to those of us who have been Christ Jesus. Why? Because we have been set free, not only from the condemnation of sin, but from the control of sin, where sin no longer has to be my master. Two people here today, Abraham. I want to talk to the believers here, those who already are saved by grace through faith. What sin exists in your life that you've not repented of right now? Don't gloss it over. Don't play games with God. He's here, and he's speaking to you. What sin have you glossed over? You, you're failing to recognize your humanity and your weakness, you, and, and he's revealing right now the sin that you need to confess. Will you today repent and be reconciled with God? And you know what? It doesn't stop just here. Because when you go out here and you have lunch here in just a little minute, you're going to sit at the restaurant. You will. 
You're going to shortchange the waitress and not give her more than she deserves in her tip. Are you going to think ill of somebody while you're pulling out of the parking lot because they didn't give you the first preference? And you're going to have to do it all over again. To admit that you've sinned, to ask for forgiveness, to abandon, to repent of that sin, and to affirm the grace and the mercy of God every single day, multiple, multiple times a day. So what stubborn sin exists in your life that you're dealing with right now? It's repetitive, it's continual, it's there. Which one? And how will you deal with it in this setting with God? Sure, you're saved by grace through faith, but you're not repenting of sin. There's some of us who are Abimelechs. We're sinners and we don't know it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 6. 23. And the wages of sin is death. Whether you recognize or realize or not, you're a sinner, and God will reveal your sin. And when God reveals that you're a sinner in need of saving grace, if you will turn from that sin and turn to Jesus and place your faith and trust in him, he will come into your heart and life, and he will cleanse you of your sin. He will renew you with a new mind, a new heart, a new life, a forgiven life, and set you on the path of righteousness for by grace through faith are you saved in that it is not of yourselves but it's the gift of God At least any one of us boast that it's our doing and not his let's pray